Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 53rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that doesn't love all the fresh parallels between either revolt and real life lately. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, good evening, I suppose. Uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to sharing uh, some great information with you guys ahead of Pro Tour Aether Revolt. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis. So we're doing a, a special wind-up show for Pro Tour A The Revolt taking place in Dublin, Ireland, uh, starting tomorrow morning. Um, why don't you walk people through how we're going to structure the segments this week? Sure. Real big twist for you guys this week, so get ready. Uh, we're going to start out uh, segment one, our top movers. We'll look at the cards that have changed the most in price recently. Segment two, get ready, is going to be the metagame week interview. We're going to look at what happened last weekend at Richmond, which will then lead us into segment three, our cards to watch, where James and I are going to talk about some of the cards that we think uh, have a pretty good shot at Aether Revolt and beyond. And then that will segue into segment four, our topic of the week, which is going to be Pro Tour Aether Revolt, which starts uh, tomorrow, I think about six and a half hours from the moment we are recording this. Uh, all right, so let's hop in on segment one, the top movers. Uh, I'll start us off this week. We are looking at Primal Vigor from Commander 2013. This is the quote-unquote fixed doubling season. Jumped from 1250 to, excuse me, 20. Uh, I mean, it seems very likely that Atraxa played a role in this. It's a card that does a lot of stuff with counters. We know how people feel about counters. Um, I think Jason Alt was banging the drum on this a little, a, for a little while uh, before um, but, you know, this is a card that only has one printing in Commander 2013. We're getting old enough. It seems like um, there's been some movement on Commander 2013 and 2014 stock lately uh, out there. So keeping that in mind. Um, yeah, so there you go. Yeah, I've got a few cases of 2013 stashed away from uh, <laughs> from the first time Wizards screwed us on a re-release where they put out the um, summer version of Commander 2013 with uh, two copies of the Mind Seize deck so that the legacy players could get their hands on True Name Nemesis. Um, I would love for those cases to suddenly be in hot demand, so I, I'm going to start looking at uh, an exit opportunity on those. Yeah, I'm pretty surprised. Honestly, that this has managed to dodge the reprint bullet for as long as it has. But, well, I guess 2013 was only three years ago. It wasn't that long. Yeah, and it's so far we've seen a, a relative reluctance to reprint cards that have only been printed in commander sets. They seem to be getting uh, breathing room um, for, you know, they'll inevitably be reprinted the most, the key cards as demand continues to build and supply continues to dwindle. But um, despite all of the, the hype around, uh, quote-unquote, too many reprints these days. Um, if you look at the numbers, um, most cards don't get reprinted every year, the vast majority. And typically, even in-demand cards get a three- to five-year window before you get to see them again. Right, right. Um, okay, so what's next up for us, James? 
So Mind Rack Demon on the back of uh, popular play in green black decks and standard has moved from $2 to $3.50. It's held back a bit by showing up as a dual deck printing, um, but it is still a standard legal uh, mythic. Um, It rotates out in the fall, so its heyday is kind of this spring or never. Um, it's definitely not going to see any modern play, and it's not the kind of card that gets people excited in casual circles. So if you want to push your chips in on this card, the time is likely now, and you better hope that it does real well at the Pro Tour. Yeah, uh, this has been showing up in those Delirium decks and, and Green Black. Um, you know, I pointed this out earlier this week at MTG Price that it has it has an, an angle here. Um, you know, but now if you know if you're spending two dollars on this, I'm not, or well, I guess three fifty now. I'm really not wild about this at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm seeing copies, you know, including inclusive of shipping as low as $3 on TCG right now. And there's uh, still over 60 results, over 150 copies in play um, just on that platform alone. Um, you know, do, and, and I'm, I just have the feeling that Standard is not as popular as it once was this year, despite, you know, the recent uh, attempts to fix it. Um, and uh, I, I'm leery of getting in on these multi-printing mythics. Um, unless I, I feel like people are going to be picking up decks in earnest and it's not clear that's going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely at this point, now that the price has moved a little bit, considerably less appealing. Um, okay. So next on our list, uh, once again is retract. Uh, you'll remember this was our top gainer from last week and a card that I talked about about three weeks ago. Uh, it kept moving up from, from nine up to about 15, $16, um, still on the back of Cheerios and the printing of SRAM or Artificer, Artificer, Orificer, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I sold a pair of these at $15, um, and uh, somebody I know listed a couple copies today at 10 and sold out of like three or four play sets within hours. It might even have been quicker than that. So there's real demand for this card right now in the 10 to $15 price range. Uh a little surprising given that, you know, I know that Sam Pardee's written about Cheerios. Um, a couple other people I think have played it on stream, but we haven't seen it really win anything. Uh, so a little surprising that there's that much traction on it, but uh, sure. I mean, if you got it, might as well take it. I think what we're seeing here is actually the power of streamers um, to move carts. I mean, some of the people that are streaming, and there was three or four streamers that covered this deck over the course of about 10 days, um, you know, lengthy sessions during, you know, prime time. Uh, prime streaming hours and you know they have thousands of people watching those streams so people get it into their heads hey this is kind of a a fun kind of silly deck that i can get my hands on relatively cheaply um and you know when you only have a few cards in the deck that are worth anything it tends and you know one of the cards retract is a four of that um was printed you know a decade ago um the table is set for these kind of gains and uh for the record, you called this in show number 49, so that was four shows back. You called it at $2.50, so if people got in on your advice at that point, they'd be up something like 600%. Yeah, yep, that was certainly one of the better ones. Uh, definitely a very early, very strong contender for best pick of uh, 2017. Yep. Uh, all right, so what's next? So we got Foils of Slight of Hand, uh, the ninth edition copies, moving from $30 to $65. This is a low inventory thing. This card is, does not see heavy play. It sees occasional play uh, in modern. Um, and, you know, if you've got this foil sitting around, by all means, sell it. Um, don't expect it to turn into a $200 foil next month. Um, and uh, definitely not the kind of thing you want to be moving in on now for future gains. 
Right. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, Ruined Halo out of Shadowmoor started the week at eight, uh, up to about 20. Uh, is, this is as best as I can tell, pretty much just a sideboard card. I don't think this is seen too much extra play. I know that those white red prison decks are running around modern. Um, did you notice if any of those decks have had, have had this in it? This is more like about side. I, occasionally I have seen that, but I think it's also, uh, the Jeskai control decks that have been doing well, uh, online and at, you know, mid tier tournaments where they, uh, sometimes run the main, but mostly run them in the sideboard. Um, and again, I think this, this is similar to retract. It's a card that's only seen a single printing. This is from Shadowmoor. That's like a decade ago. Um, and inventory was relatively low and, uh, people caught wind of the, the card as seeing some fresh play and, and off it went. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, sideboard cards are typically not your strongest choices when, um, looking for spec pickups or to, to scoop stuff up simply because of the demand profile tends to be fairly minimal and sideboard slots are generally flexible. So if you don't have ruined halo, you can probably come up with something else. But I mean, even the cheapest elk key copy is like 18, $19. So clearly, uh, I mean, if somebody made a point of going in on this, they scooped up all the cheap LP copies too. Um, there's just nothing left. So eh, if you had still had some time to dig them out, I think I've got a couple myself. Uh, all right. You want to finish this off this week? I know this one's a, a pet card of yours. Uh, yeah, so next on our list we have Hardened Scales Foils, uh, one of uh, my calls from a few shows back at about $3, uh, moved up to $10, so we're already tripling up, folks, and the inventory is basically sold out. Um, you know, Hardened Scales deck decks have an outside chance of doing something in modern um, as a, you know, LGS level uh, deck. There are a bunch of cool options now. Um, uh, white green humans is a possibility. You have winding constrictor and walking ballista that can partner with hanger back Walker to make some busted turn twos with metallic mimic. Um, and, uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of casual demand for this card. It's a potential attracts a card, although it doesn't, it's not, uh, super high impact in commander. So it's not, uh, an auto in an attracts a decks. Um, uh, in the face of cards like Doubling Season and Primal Vigor that tend to have more impact. Um, but the demand profile is wide enough that, uh, and it's been a couple of years now um, since the release of Khans of Tarkir, that the foils have mostly dry, uh, dried up. It didn't hurt that uh, a couple of other MTG Finance writers picked up on my recommendation and ran with it, uh, picked up copies of their own and made some noise about it. Um, I think a lot of this activity has largely been speculative, um, but the reality is that the inventory is now drained out of the market. So when people want copies, um, they're probably going to be playing some, paying something pretty close to this plateau. I don't imagine the foils are going to drop down below $8 anytime soon. Yeah, I really like basically that this costs one mana. That is my favorite part of this card is that it's so easy to scoot, to put in. You know, it's not like it's three mana where you have to debate if it's good enough. It's like, nope, if you want the effect, it is cheap enough. Uh, you know, you can't get any cheaper. So I'm, I'm a fan on that, on that vector alone. From a spec score perspective, um, it's also, uh, sexy because it has open-ended synergy with plus one plus one counters and wizards has really been driving home the plus one plus one counter synergies over the last few blocks. 
um, all sorts of cards from Winding Constrictor to Thalia's Lieutenant um, to Walking Ballista and Hanger Backwalker. There's just a, a lot of high power cards that have been u- making use of plus one plus one counters. And then Atraxa goes and gets printed um, and gives commander players a, a reason to be thinking about counters and tokens again. And, um, you know, overall that creates this swelling of demand that allows for cards like this to make gains either in the short or long term. Man, so we can have uh, a modern deck with hardened scales and winding constrictor and walking ballista and wait a Kathian javelin ears and get a bunch of javelin tokens and throw the keep throwing those i'm sure i'm sure those <laughs> double or something yeah it's it's more like uh dropping metallic mimic uh on uh turn two into walking ballista and hanger back walker on two immediately from a turn one uh hardened scales yeah. Um, which can turn into something that, you know, if, if they bolt the hanger back walker, you've got two one one flyers, so that's kind of like a lingering souls. And uh if they bolt the ballista, you get to shoot them back twice. Um uh there's all sorts of more powerful things happening in modern, but it, there will reach a point where we have critical mass. The other thing that's interesting is that you have Champion of the Parish and Thalia's Lieutenant, right? So you can go like the green white humans route with Servant of the Scale, um, those two humans, and then uh uh, a whole bunch of other cards that came out uh, from KTK block forward that have made that uh, a semi-viable deck. There's also an ooze version of the deck where you can play with things like Predator Ooze. That's the three green mana 1-1 one, one that's indestructible, and every time it get it gets dealt damage, it gets a plus one, plus one counter, which means that if there's a scales out, it gets two or a constrictor. Um, and uh, there's Scavenging Ooze, obviously, and a bunch of other oozes that uh, that can be... Uh, played in that kind of silliness and it's important to keep in, for people to keep in mind that pro tour results um do not necessarily drive sales throughout the year they tend to create spikes that are local to those tournaments but because those metagames are relatively unique um uh, often you're picking decks at the pro tour knowing that you're going to be playing against other teams that are the best teams in the world um that, that's a very different environment than your local LGS, and there there are plenty of decks that uh, are plenty of cards that have been played mostly in janky decks that have been popular at the you know Friday night magic level that have never made it anywhere at high level tournaments and have still made retailers a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure, I think we're we've got to be getting close to the critical mass on one one counters in modern, right? Like we just got we got hardened scales, we got wine constrictor, we got the mimic. Now that's a lot of tools. Uh, it feels like we there's they've got to be getting close at this point. I mean, I'm not the one breaking it, but uh... I mean, it, it certainly doesn't help all of these kind of like low to the ground creature strategies that aim to leverage synergies that they now have to face up against uh, potentially eight of twelve possible copies, depending on the color configuration of Path to Exile, Lightning Bolt, and Fatal Push. Right? You now have uh, in Mardu colors, you would have you potentially have twelve one casting cost, highly efficient kill spells. Um, sure. And that 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 now becomes this kind of like litmus test for anybody that wants to run low to the ground aggro. Can you handle? Uh, can you overcome uh, on a mana efficiency, tempo, or card advantage basis what these control decks can potentially offer up, um, and still be able to beat you know the weird combo decks that are all over the map in the format? I mean, it's so hard to set up to beat um, graveyard shenanigans from Dredge, as well as tackling Tron and their ability to rampart. Um, and also being ready to deal with a deck like Scapeshift. Um, and, you know, people could start bringing uh, the Sahili Rai um, Felidar Guardian combo into modern. I mean, it's not crazy that there might be some kind of uh, Jeskai deck that will go that route now. Sure. 
It's going to be real fun when we get to a point where Wizards has to ban Lightning Bolt in Modern. <laughs> I mean, no, if Modern, if, given that Modern doesn't have a Pro Tour anymore, and 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 there there uh, is barely uh, gets camera time throughout the year, um, uh, you know, we'll have to see if Modern is even capable of driving hard spikes anymore. I mean, it's it's becoming fewer and further between. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, what a shame. All right. Let's move on uh, to segment three. Uh, I'm sorry, segment two, which is normally segment three. The metagame week in review. Uh, we're going to be looking at Star City Richmond this past weekend. Um, just to kind of set the baseline of what we're expecting at the Pro Tour here. Uh, clearly, the story of this weekend was uh, Guy Sahili um, and Sahili in general. We saw uh, five copies. One, two, three, four, five. Well, there's five Jeskai slash four color Sahili decks. Uh, I'm sorry, four. One was just a Jeskai control deck, so it was basically the same thing. It was missing the Sahili combo. I guess it was just trying to threaten people with, you know, the threat of the combo without actually having to play it. Um, and then the other three slots were black green. So clearly there is a real, uh, I guess, precedent going into the Pro Tour that we have pretty much two decks Sahili decks and black green. Um, and you know, there's, there's a couple stripes of each. So those are, those are what we're really looking for. The real question is what are we going to get from the outside and is it going to be good enough to take over these two archetypes? Um, they've done very well every weekend since Aether Revolt's release. Uh, and the black green one especially looks pretty tight, pretty, uh, uh, in a good position. You know, it has the tools to do a lot of work. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping that, um, all of these really cool cards that are in Kaladesh and Aether Revolt really open up the format a little bit for us in the hands of some pros. But I am a little concerned that this is just going to turn into a, uh, you know, Sahili black green format pretty fast. And that, you know, or, and, and then it will last five weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, the, if you look at the ninth to 16th decks at Richmond, you have a Boros aggro deck, um, that made top 16, a Rakdos aggro deck, um, and an Eldrazi aggro deck. And these are, you know, some dark horses that might be worth keeping an eye on. Um, but the reality is that the Jeskai Sahili um, uh, shell is flexible enough that I, I, I would guess it will survive testing. Um, that when the big teams sit down and throw a bunch of different stuff at it, it, it I, I think a lot of players on various top tier teams are going to say, yeah, sometimes this outsider deck beats me, but I don't think a lot of people are going to be on the outsider deck. And my percentages against the majority of the field, now that we've tuned this, look pretty strong. And I just want to outplay everybody um, that's gunning for me. And and this is, you know, my sideboard plan that I'm going to use that might address that. And so I think that, and and the consistency of the black-green decks is apparent. I mean, the, the tournament before SCG, SCG Richmond, um, the results were kind of inversed. We saw black-green decks in the top four, and the Jeskai Sahilis were all um, in the five through eight slots. Um, and the week after, it's reversed. So what that says is that between those two, those two um, you know, tier one shells, it's a bit of a toss-up, and you can outplay your opponent um uh, either on the board or via your sideboarding and main deck, uh, you know, card by card, card implementations. Um, are there dark horse decks like Metalwork Colossus, um, like Inspiring Sanctuary, um, you know, Storm Combo, and, uh, you know, Eldrazi Brews and so forth that, uh, or like White Red Humans that have a shot? Um, 
you know, I would say yes. I mean, the, those are all decks that have proven they can make top eights and top 16s in this format, um, some more recently than others. Um, but I think that the, you know, if I had to make a guess, I would say that the top eight of this pro tour is going to be two or three Sahili brews, two or three black greens, a couple of control decks, and maybe a dark horse that squeaks in that takes everybody by surprise. Yeah. What I'm kind of expecting here and what I've heard is, oh, you know, there's going to be, uh, once the pros test against it, it's a real known quantity. They're going to figure out how to beat it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can test against it all you want, but if it's the best thing to do in the format, they're all just going to be doing it and it'll just get rather inbred, right? Like I, I don't buy the argument that because they know it's coming, they'll figure out how to beat it. It, they will either figure out if it can be beaten, they'll figure it out. And if they, or they'll figure out that it's the best thing. And then that's all you're going to see. And the problem is if you decide to metagame heavily against it, you're playing this paper, rock, scissors game where if you end up building the deck that can beat it consistently and I'm, you know, beat the, the, the Sahili Rai, um, Felidar Guardian combo consistently, um, then you may end up, uh, booting yourself out of the top tables on day two by being bad against all the control decks that, that might be levied against it. Um, and you know, maybe you're, and maybe if you're a control deck, maybe you're going to get overrun by some aggro decks. Um, in the early tables, um, that you're not, that you're not set up to deal with because you're so heavily skewed uh, against the Jeskai decks. Um, I, I think it's going to be a very tricky, um, pro tour to, to come at. There's all, all sorts of weirdo cards that could show up. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, the, the blue card from, uh, Ether Revolt, uh, Whir of Invention. This is the improvised spell that lets you search your library for an artifact card with a converted mana cost X or less, put it on the battlefield and shuffle. You could try to do something with that. Um, maybe you're going to try to make mechanized production work, the, the, have a clue based deck and try to win on off having eight clues on the table. Um, there's all sorts of whack-a-mo stuff you can try. Um, a lot of the expertise cards haven't been put to full use yet. Maybe they'll figure out some kind of, um, Sultai control shell or something using Rishkar's expertise at the top end to do all sorts of bustedness. But I just find it very hard to believe that it's going to be more than a few players on a few teams that are going to go that outsider route. And they have a very long gauntlet to get through um, and a very daunting tier set of tier one decks that they've got to beat consistently all the way through day two. Yeah, as it's going to be. Uh, well, okay, well. <laughs> it's it's going to be something. It's going to be something. It'll be fun to watch. We'll see. Uh, it starts, <coughs> excuse me, starts, uh, God, what is it? It's like 4 a.m. Eastern, I think, is what time the draft starts. So about 9 a.m. Eastern Friday is when standard should start, and we'll start getting a picture uh, pretty quick. Um, all right, so uh, let's jump into our, our, cards, our cards to watch right now here. I think this is a good point for that and, uh, you know, what we're looking at for the Pro Tour and, and the weeks after. So why don't you get us started, James? Sure. So, I mean, if I was going to play it safe this weekend, the cards that I would already have picked up, um, because I think that you, uh, you know, you're getting, <laughs> if you're listening to this Thursday night and it's starting Friday morning, um, you may have trouble getting packages to arrive, um, in time to really catch the best hype spikes, um, when it becomes apparent how dominant these cards may or may not be on Sunday. Um, but I think that both Torrential Gear Hulk and Verderous Gear Hulk are set up to be the most important mythics in the format, especially if Sahili Rai continues to do well at this tournament and consequently looks like it will be banned. 
during that five week uh, window um, where we have the extra ban uh, period. Um, if Zahili Rai wins or dominates this top eight, um, I think that Felidar Guardian gets banned. Um, and that leaves a format where Torrential Gear Hulk and Verderous Gear Hulk um, in, in uh, control shells for, for Torrential and in the green black counter base shells for Verderous um, and the Delirium shells to some uh, a lesser extent. Um, these mythics are set up to potentially break $30 between now and say next fall. Um, you're going to get numerous opportunities for them to climb that high. Um, they were both just printed in Kaladesh. So, um, torrential being at 22 right now, if you're pushing for 30, you know, it's not a tremendous gain, but you could still make something like 25% after fees. If you can get in on a, a playset for say $80 and later sell it for, you know, 120 minus fees, then, you know, you might clear 20 bucks or something like that. Nothing tremendous, but it's a play you could make. Um, if you believe that Verderous Gear Hulk is going to be just as popular as Torrential, then it's a little cheaper at about $15 or $16 a copy. Um, and if it pushes somewhere between 25 and 30 this year, then you might be good for, say, 40% um, uh, after fees. Um, neither of these opportunities opportunities are the best thing in the market, but they're the cards that I, I suspect have the greatest chance to spike. One of the things that I've got my eye on is that their inventory is relatively low, um, for a fall printing mythic. And the price spread on the near mint copies on TCG player, um, you know, pushes from 22 for torrential right up to 26 to 28 already when you get about 30 or 40 copies down the road. And Verderous Gearhawk moves up into the low 20s in a similar fashion. And what that says is there are a lot of vendors who are in no rush to sell them because they expect an incoming price spike. Um, and in a situation like that, that, that is where there can be an opportunity, if you're already holding copies especially, to be able to sell into uh, a potential spike on, say, Saturday night when we know what the the day two metagame is looking like. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Uh, right. Torrential Gearhawk, you know, the, the, it, it kind of fits into this this uh, theme of cards that are, are known quantities, have this real price tag. Uh, you know, Gideon was another card that I kind of looked at. It was in the same ballpark, you know, in the high teens, low 20s. And you're like, man, this card is still feels like there's meat on the bone. Uh, and, you know, you could theoretically could be well over $30 for a short period of time. I personally have a lot of trouble buying into those. You know, I look at them and I go, oh, this is probably going to make money. And uh, James, honestly, God, I think the chances are much better than not by Monday. Torrential Gear Hulk will be at least 30 or more. And you will have made money if you bought them. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where if you're, it's really tough to buy them. Although if I'm, well, as I say, if I'm an F&M, I would trade for them. But by then it's probably going to be too late, right? Like it's Thursday night. So it's just kind of, we're just watching at this point. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the thing is that, uh, these particular spikes, and, and this is how they, you know, even though they are less enticing than some of the Dark Horse picks, they are probably more certain because it's very unlikely that those two cards are knocked out of the format this weekend. Like, I just don't buy that. I, I don't buy that anybody is going to bring a new metagame-defining deck to the table that invalidates the buffing power of Verderous Gear Hulk or the incredible... Um, late game power of a torrential gear hulk flashing in blocking a creature killing it uh, and recasting a glimmer of genius or um, uh, a burn spell 
to, you know, take back control of the game and turn the corner. Um, right. Yeah. Almost I, no matter, mean, I agree with you on that Almost one. no matter what happens this weekend, these cards have a fairly long opportunity to do well. I mean, really, they have until this time next year. So they get a full year to get their $30 spike. And I think that Gideon Ally of Zendikar is a very good comparison because it's another card that was underestimated at various points, that was counted out of the format at various points, and and yet still managed to spike kind of right on schedule a year after its release and get from a $20, you know, $16 to $18 entry point that was possible when it was called up into the $30 range uh, in mid-November when you had a chance to exit, you know, for somewhere around 8 to $10 per copy profit after fees. Um these would be my picks for a similar type of performance, and I like the fact that these cards are are, are very likely to be good um, again some point in the year, even if they don't see their spike this weekend. Mm-hmm. That, and that's true. That's very true. Um, all right, so let's move along. <clears throat> uh, my first card is uh, Inspiring Statuary. Um, this is the three mana artifact that gives all of your non-artifact spells Inspire. Um, So what we have here is a three-mana artifact that uh, reduces the costs of all of your other spells. Uh, And cost reduction, obviously, has a long history of being broken. I mean, we don't have to look back very far to see Delve um, and Treasure Cruise and Ancestral Visions. You had to jump through hoops and that one to put cards in your graveyard. This one is, oh, put artifacts in the play, and suddenly everything else gets cheaper. Um, so definitely some power there. Uh, I wrote this down earlier today when I was putting the show notes together around lunchtime and wrote down that it was about $1.50. Apparently, some buyouts started on this card a couple hours ago. Um, so I don't know if there's really any left that you can score cheap after you listen to this. I think there's still copies out there around two and a little lower than that, but I don't know if there's many. Um, and I don't know where this is going to go after this. So... Uh, if you picked up some before this, great. Good job. If not, I guess you're kind of just watching it with the rest of us. Uh, but but I do think the power level is definitely there. Um, and if it's not this weekend, uh, it could definitely turn into something down the road. It's especially interesting in older formats where there's other artifacts. Just imagine this card with moxes, James. You could tap your mox f- to reduce the cost of your spells by one mana. Uh, oh, wow. But, but I do- yeah. <laughs> But I do love cost reduction effects, and this is one of them. Um, and even if it doesn't go anywhere this weekend, uh, if people start dumping them at low prices to get rid of them, I would I would consider grabbing some more at you know fifty to seventy five cents. Yeah, I mean the the interesting thing here is that at some point down the road, they print something that partners with this in a way that they didn't test. Um, you know, uh, all you really need is something like uh, an X spell that makes tokens that happen to be artifacts for once instead of soldiers or something. Um, and all of a sudden you got a bunch of ways to, you know, to tap for mana, uh, on improvised spells and, and, and that gets interesting. Um, the, the presumption here for this weekend and what makes this like a, a card that people are targeting is that there is a combo with my other pick, which is Etherflux Reservoir. Um, uh, there's a storm combo-esque type deck that you can play in standard right now that uses Inspiring Statuary and Etherflex Reservoir to cast a whole bunch of spells um, and get to 50 life and then kill your opponent. Um, so I've got Reservoir on my list as kind of a dark horse pick that is 
that you should pick up only if you're planning to purchase it for the long haul. Um, the card is a rare from uh, Kaladesh. It's available for a dollar. Um, it's a future $5 card for sure. Um, it could take a while to get there if it doesn't perform uh, well at this Pro Tour or at some point this year. Um, if it doesn't do well sometime in the near future, you probably get to pick up copies at 50 cents this summer, which is even better. Um, and then you sit on a whole bunch of them for a while and, and wait for the casuals to drain it out um, or for somebody to figure out how to break it in modern um, the or frontier for that matter. Um, but here's the thing about this deck. Even if it should, even if it tests well, and even if a team brings it, I don't think very many teams will bring it. And they still have to make it through the whole tournament. And combo decks like this, um, that can self fizzle have, are, are going to have trouble making it through two full days of rounds and keeping their percentages up. And this would be the kind of deck that you could see as a one of in the top eight. Um, it could get on camera in round three and, and beat somebody to a pulp and leave them flat footed. And then the copy spiked to $5. But this is that terrible, uh, anti sweet spot that we talked about uh, a couple times recently where a card moves from a dollar or two to four or five. And then there's a rush to the exit door as everybody tries to unload them and you end up selling them for 375 a copy or something. And after fees and everything else, you're making 50 to 50 cents to a dollar per copy. And it's just not worth all the effort um it's going to be really hard for this deck to take over the metagame to such an extent that a lot of people pick it up and start playing it one of the problems with with cards related to combo decks is that they appeal to a smaller subset of the magic community and are less likely to show it up at fnms in force um unless they are just you know utterly easy to play and super busted you know, all day long, which is not likely to be the case. These are these are very technical decks. They're tricky to play. Um, you need to put in a lot of uh, repetitions to get good with them and to understand, you know, when to hold, when to fold, when to when to redraw, and so forth. Uh, what you can keep versus the various aggro decks in the for- format and still uh, be able to go off before they, you know, put you to zero. Um, and for all of those reasons, I think that both of these picks are, you know, long-term stocking horses that have a shot this weekend, but I don't feel super confident about either of them. Right. Yeah. At this point in Spartan Statuary, is, is the, the opportunity is pretty much shot. You know, if you were able to score them at a dollar, you know, and they get to five or six, then you're good. But I agree. Once you, you know, you double that into the $2 range, it is so much harder to, to make any money with that. Um, my second pick this week is Voldar and Pariah. Uh, I'll touch on this, uh, quickly. This is the, uh, the black vampire from, Eldritch Moon that uh, you uh, it's five mana for three, three, but you can madness it into play for triple black. Um, You can sack three. If you sack three other creatures, you transform it. But once it's transformed, your opponent has to then sacrifice three creatures. So this can eat, uh, you know, walking blista, whining constrictor and grim flare uh, pretty easily while you're sacking like your uh, prize amalgam and crypt breaker. Uh, it's a really powerful effect. It doesn't die to um, Fatal Push, which is pretty handy. Uh, Harness Lightning can get the front half of it, but not the back half. So it's certainly resilient in face of the form in the face of the format's removal. So I like that. Currently, copies are around a dollar, a little less than that. Red Black Aggro is kind of on that that fringe of the format. Um, not quite there, but maybe somebody breaks it. Uh, you know, again, this is kind of one of those cards, like a dollar to maybe like three, four, or five. So not the easiest thing to make profit with, um, even if you do score cheap copies. Mostly just kind of keep an eye out 
at the trade tables. Um, I don't think this is a bad choice because it's still got still got uh well no because it'll rotate this fall. So I don't know. I guess I guess this is a, this weekend is probably its last hurrah, right? Well, I mean, my two cents on this card is that uh, you're going to get a shot at it this summer at 50 cents during a SEG sale or something. And at that point, go ahead and pick some up. There's two things going for it. Um, one, the foils are gorgeous. I, I bought some foils just because I saw them in a case and I was like, oh, my God, like the backside of this card is just stunning and foiled. Like the art's amazing. Um, so if you're anybody who's into, you know, hot looking foils just for the sake of collecting them, this is a cool card. Um, more importantly, in Frontier, this is a very real card as a four of in black white tokens. Um, they get some tokens on the table, they sack those tokens, they flip this thing, and the opponent loses three important creatures. Um, and that can happen at instant speed. So the uh, if that format takes off, this actually is uh, a tier two kind of staple uh, in the format. And eventually the black-white tokens deck in Frontier gets gets more tools. Um, and this will be a card in that deck. Um, I've seen it played. Mm-hmm. It's beaten me. Um, it's a real thing. Okay. Um, all right. So, and just to finish this off, the last card I was looking at this week is Elder Deep Fiend. This one I like a little more. Elder Deep Fiend is the, also from Eldritch Moon, it is the blue, uh, God, what is it, Emerge? Is that the, that's the term they use for these, right? Emerge. Uh, the blue one that is sort of the misbind click uh, impression, it's a flash five, six, it taps for permanence. So you can do this on your opponent's end step. You flash in your deep fiend, you tap down their lands. So they either counter the deep fiend, or if they don't counter it, it comes in the plane, taps your lands, and then you get to cast whatever you want on your main phase. Um, it also, it rumbles with torrential gearhawks pretty well. It was actually seen quite a bit of play in the various humor lists back, uh, before I think it was before we had Aether Marvel Works is when Elder Deep Fiend kind of was doing pretty well. Um, Emrakul was in the format, obviously they're in the same set, but it hadn't really emerged as as the dominant Eldrazi yet. And then Aether Works Marvel came out and kind of took over. But uh, Elder Deep Fiend definitely has um, some position in the format, some history of being a pretty powerful card. Uh, and with Emrakul gone again, we may see this come to the forefront. We saw it a little bit this past weekend at Richmond. Um, I know one of the, p- the players had, I think, a couple in his main deck. Somebody else had them in their board. And uh, there's one game in particular I remember catching where the guy played a deep fiend and just blew his opponent out on turn four by uh, taking out an Ahiria by surprise. So a, a very powerful card. Prices again. Looks like you might be able to score some under $2. Um, I'm not positive. That you'll be able to find money at that price, but uh, you know at the dollar fifty range these aren't these aren't bad, um, especially since I think this is could it could be a dollar it could be six seven dollars uh, if we see it if we see it do well because it's usually played as a play set, um, but but a good card with with some pedigree. What do you think? Well, there was definitely there are definitely versions of Copycat that are running four copies of Elder Deep Fiend. Caleb Share um, that finished top sixteen at Richmond uh, was running four main. Um, some of the other decks ran a couple in the main, a couple in sideboard, as you said. Um, one of the problems here is that the better, if the Sahili Rai combo decks do really well, then all of the cards that are associated um, are, are likely to fall in a hurry once people realize that it's probably getting banned. Um, so the real question is, Elder Deep Fiend, will Elder Deep Fiend get a, an additional shot a little further down the road um, if a some kind of Eldrazi or T-Merge or Grixis Emerge type deck comes back on the scene um, in the, the next version of the meta? Or will Amon Ket um, make this card uh, a, 
good again. Um, one of the, the problems with this card is that it competes in some ways with the, um, the late game, mid game slots with Torrential Gear Hulk. Um, running four of both is, is somewhat unlikely, um, because you could end up with a opening hand that would just do nothing for too long. Um, so there, there's some potential for the card, but the inventory level on this is still really deep on TCG, like 250 plus copies available, um, with, uh, relative, relatively minimal spread between the lowest price copies and the most expensive ones. Everything kind of clustered between $1.50 and 250. Um, nobody really seems to be expecting a five or $6 pump and is pricing for the spike later this weekend. So, I mean, I think the card can easily see play this weekend. The question is whether it will see enough play amongst enough different archetypes. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you're sitting at home considering picks of your own that we haven't mentioned, what I'll say to you is this, when you're the number one con- consideration for whether your the spike that you might gain from the pro tour is going to be sustainable um, and will hold long enough for you to make your money and get back out is is not will this end up in a deck on camera because that can drive a short-term spike that doesn't get you anywhere the question is is this a card that is played as a three or four of in multiple different deck styles that in a post Sahili Rai world is still likely to see that level of play if you can answer those questions positively then you're in a much better position than with some of the other dark horse options Sure. Yeah, I suppose. Does it have legs after Sahili gets banned is a uh, very relevant point to consider because uh, the format's going to have to change really dramatically to not see that combo banned. So, for instance, another kind of like semi-obvious pick could be something like Blooming Marsh. If if the green-black decks, which are highly unlikely to get affected by bannings, it's just the, the green-black decks are set up to be powerful, um, uh, consistent, um, uh, reliable deck shells that aren't doing anything too broken that's going to, that anybody's going to want to see banned. And they already, you know, green, black already kind of lost Emrakul. Um, so I don't think they're going to be targeting that archetype again, no matter how well it does this weekend. Um, and as a result, Blooming Marsh, which sees, you know, play in Frontier definitely is going to see some play in, mo- uh, in modern, um, in, uh, both Jund and Abzan less. Um, you know, if it does, if green, black, is set up to be the tier one deck that everybody expects to um, hold the crown if Sahili does well and looks like it will be banned, but Green Black was kind of right there with it neck and neck throughout the rest of the weekend, um, then Blooming Marshes could move from five or six dollars to ten plus um, and hold that for a while on the on the basis that everybody's running for them. Yeah, lands, you know, we haven't talked about lands too often, I think, in general, uh on our on our cast every now and then, but they, these really used to be my bread and butter, at least before the expedition started getting, the masterpiece started getting printed. Um, so blooming March is, is definitely worth keeping an eye on because if black green is really good now and persists through Sahili, uh, yeah, that's, that definitely positions that land well to get into the double digit territory pretty comfortably, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that Shocklands from Ravnica and their failure to make any of us any money has really put everybody off the 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 ubiquitous uh, fall set rare lands. Um, duels just don't seem as safe as as they once did. Um, but you know, getting in on Blooming Marsh uh, in the like three to four dollar range in late December um, uh, has already you know paid off at the trading table if you can trade them out in the six to seven dollar range where they're at right now and the curve on this card is just pointed straight to the sky so i mean it could easily end up at ten dollars 
um, in the next couple of months, either off the Pro Tour or just from continued demand of the format. Um, and I am seeing a relatively strong spread between the, the lowest priced copies and the mid priced copies on TCG, which suggests to me that some dealers are anticipating that kind of motion. Um, Spire, right. Bluff Canal, Spire Bluff Canal would be the analog in the Jeskai decks. Right. I um, I really do wonder about, you know, how much the Shocklands chilled a lot of demand for those lands like that. Because, uh, you know, I had a bunch of Shocklands, too, and I ended up selling them, and they weren't were not for a whole lot of money. I don't know. I made some profit, but not anything remarkable. Some of them I might have even taken a loss on. I'm not sure uh, right now, but that, that really... It definitely feels like it, it turned me off, uh, to fall set lands considerably more. Um, and I wonder what, if that really had a, a widespread impact on a lot of people that do this, this type of thing. Cause it, I don't know, it feels like they don't move as much, uh, as much as they used to, but that, I guess that's, that's definitely, um, attributable to the masterpiece series, but series, but, uh, I mean, it also could be just a lot less people are interested in, in stocking up on extra copies. I mean, my, my theory about all the lands for modern and why everything but the single printing specialty lands um, is not particularly interesting is because um, there are so many good lands in that format right now um, that it, it takes a lot for a new land to break in. Um, you know, if you look at the mana bases, they are um, tend to be very... Uh, uh, fractured, you know, it's a it's a one of copy of this, a two of copy of that, three of copy of that, um, occasionally four of of certain fetch lands where where it makes sense for certain decks. Um, but different decks have different needs, and there's a ton of different decks in the format. And the other big point is, and this is true of all modern staples, is that um, they're being held down by the fact that a lot of modern players already have their pet deck. Um, you know, they're on Merfolk, they're on Affinity, they're on. Um, uh, uh, Scape Shift or what have you on Tron, etc. And they don't switch that much. I mean, the pro level guys, they have to switch to, to shift with the metagame so that they can win tournaments. But at FNM, you know, if you've got $2,000 invested in a foiled out, uh, tricked out version of your deck, the odds that you're going to jump to the new haunt thing are pretty low. Um, because it's just too much of a financial commitment. And then you got to go through the hassle of, um, you know, repurposing your other deck or trying to resell it to somebody else. And that's never easy to do without taking a loss. Um, and so I just think that the longer formats go on, um, the harder it is for them to make us money. Yeah, I really wonder, I really wonder what the, the amount of players are that, that do that because I switched between modern decks on a whim, uh, back when I was playing heavily, um, I expect most players don't have that collection, but even out of the people I knew, they were generally, I remember when I knew nobody was locked into one deck unless they wanted to be. Most of them could field a couple, uh, because even if they were missing a few various pieces, they would borrow them. So I, I, you know, we don't really have any way to quantify this. I do suspect that the fluidity of a lot of players between switching decks is, is reasonably high. Um, you know, they borrow the cards they need from their friends or they trade off their cards for the hot new thing because they're dumb and then they trade back for the cards they already owned. And they're all magic players, so they want to own a bunch of this stuff. Um, they're drawn to it. Uh, but, I mean, in any case, I yeah, the lands have just have, don't seem to have really, uh, really done as much as they used to. Um, so I guess this all segues into into our last segment, which is supposed to be our, our kind of look forward to the Pro Tour, which we've, we've basically already bled into at this point. Uh, is there, 
Is there anything about this weekend's Pro Tour that you feel like you haven't had a chance to say yet? Well, we should probably talk about Walking Ballista, which may end up being the defining card of the format, regardless of what happens with Sahili Rai, right? Ooh, um, let's hope, because I've still got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we look at what happened with the price of Hangerback Walker, right, um, which was a similarly ubiquitous um, artifact creature that could be played in a bunch of different shells um, and had uh, a peak in the, like, $20 range. And we look at Walking Ballista's price right now, which had, you know, peaked last weekend at about 15 and has fallen off into the 12 to $13 range. Can it as well peak at or in and around $20 and make somebody some money? Well, sorry, I was yawning. Uh, can can Walking Ballista hit $20? Was that your question? Yeah. And, may, you know, it, and make people five bucks a copy after fees. Oh, if they buy in today, you mean? Yeah, at 12 Oh, God. Yes, but do I think it will happen? Not enough to gamble $12 a copy, I don't. That is... Oh. You know, what was what did Smuggler's Copter cap out at? It was like 18 or 19 wasn't it? Yeah. So, I, 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 there was there was people that had priced... That had Copter priced as high as, as 30 Um I mean, it, it was all over the place, especially at retail, um, where, you know, everybody was struggling to get their hands on their playset. Um, once it became apparent, it was ne- going to be necessary. Um, you know, the, the, all of those cards are in that same category that if it continues to do well, then, uh, it can probably hold, uh, you know, definitely over 10. But the problem is that we're not even at peak supply yet for either revolt. We're only in the first couple of weeks. So more and more walking ballistas are going to get opened. Right, right. Yeah, I, I really don't like buying Walking Ballista here. You know, there is such a slim chance that it that it breaks out and uh, and gets over twenty dollars and makes people money. It, it's possible, but just ooh, God, it just makes me so nervous <laughs> even thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's the thing: Walking Ballista could be playable in modern. Um, it's definitely playable in Frontier, um, where it does all sorts of crazy things. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like the card, it, it could be playable in Legacy and in Vintage. I mean, they th- those brewers really haven't even had a chance to, you know, put uh, strong ideas for the card out uh, out and have them circulate. So uh, I'm definitely curious about foils at this price point. I sold out my copies in the 15 to $16 range that I had picked up uh, at pre-releases um, and was happy to get out at that price. Um, you know, it's a within a dollar or two of what I expect to be the local maximum this spring, almost no matter what happens. Um, so probably I would say stay away and look for a safer Harbor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if you have them, uh, you're, I mean, your best bet is to wait until Monday morning to sell them because if either it's a breakout card and it does jump to 15 or $20 and you can sell into it or it's not. And it's that worst, just playable. Um, and then the price doesn't skyrocket, but it's not going to plummet either. And then you can still list them Monday mornings. But either way, I think you're selling your walking blisses Monday, no matter what. So I, I do have one other recommendation, especially for the people who haven't managed to get their hands on cards that have a good chance of spiking this weekend. Um, your best bet so that you don't have to do all the paper handling is to make your play for the Pro Tour weekend on Magic Online. 
Magic Online lets you move in and out of cards in seconds. So uh, if you feel confident about a pick and you want to be able to sell into the spike, the spikes on Magic Online on the Pro Tour are even more extreme than they are on paper. They happen faster. Um, and they they tend to... Uh, it tends to go down like this. You know, something appear, appears on camera that was unexpected in round three or four. A ton of people all over the world have the same idea at the same moment, go to the same bots and try to buy as many copies as they can get their hands on. And because the bots are uh, basically iterative, they, they look at the price of the last sale of four copies and they move it up a few cents. And if it sells at that, they move it up a few cents again. By the time that flurry of activity is over an hour later, a card can double, triple, quadruple. Um, if you look at the price of what's happened to Sahili Rai online, <laughs> I uh, infamously bought in on Sahili Rai online on the basis of some play from a random deck that Saffron Olive was playing uh, a little while back at around a dollar twenty a copy, and was excited uh, twenty four hours later to get out at a dollar eighty a copy for a fifty cent per sixty cent per copy gain, which I racked up as a fifty percent uh, win, uh, and then the card went to like ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I cost myself hundreds of dollars, but you know, even in losing, was still a reasonable win. Sure, Moto is wild around the Pro Tour. Those price swings are fast and dramatic. But you, uh, yeah, you know, I feel like I would do so much more if that trading interface wasn't as bad as it is, because <clears throat> it, so, it's so, so much more viable. But I can't get past those binders <laughs> so a couple of tips um there's a there are bots that are much faster than other bots um in terms of processing orders um i'll call out our friends at mtgo traders uh particularly as having some of the fastest bots in the mtgo marketplace um i frequently trade with those guys and i can get trades done in 10 seconds flat um with those bots they are very very uh, efficient um and one of the nice things with this pro tour is that if you happen to be an early riser, you're going to have a major advantage this time because you know the first rounds of play are going to be before most people have gotten up or are on their way to work. And you're going to have a shot to get a hold of those dark horse cards ahead of the North American market, um, which could be good for some serious gains. Right. Um, now, does, is MTGO Traders one of the groups that blocks you from buying more than like four cards at a time? Uh, well, mo- most bots will not allow you to take more than four copies at a time. And, and most of them uh, handle that effectively just by not stocking bots with more than four copies at a time. Um, but they run multiple bots. Um, you will pay a little extra each time you buy another set of four, because as I said, most of the bots are running on iterative algorithms um, that will slowly increase the price as you keep buying. But if something's going to triple or quadruple and you're buying in at $2 and you start at two and you end up at two fifty because it's moving at three or four cents per card every time you buy a playset, um, you can still, you know, rack up, you know, 15, 20 copies of something and have your shot at glory. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, depending on how much they're increasing it by, it's probably still fine. Um, you know, a couple percentage points isn't too bad. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else we want to talk about? So it's burning statuary. It'd be cool to see Paradox Engine do something, but that card's already too expensive to matter. It's like six bucks or something like that. Five bucks. And it's legendary. So I, I have trouble believing that the decks that are would try to figure out how to do something with it um, would be running more than a copy or two and then ways to search it up. Yeah. 
Yeah, Herald of Anguish, I guess, probably got an angle. Same with Mechanized Production, but those are all outside shots as well. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, if, Her- if Herald of Anguish doesn't find its place this weekend, then it's way overpriced in paper. Yeah, how much is that thing? It's Seven or eight bucks, I think. Oh, man, really? Uh, yeah, geez. Even seven's a little on the low side, I think. <clears throat> Looks like it's probably more than that. That is pricey for this. Without any, uh, without any proof at all, man, I'd want, I'd be selling this today. Really, I think. So one, one of the other decks that we haven't talked about that I'll just put in briefly has a has a shot that I think it's a card with a similar profile to say Elder Deep Fiend, but I think it has a better shot. Is Metalwork Colossus? Um, that deck has been on uh, tier two all the way through the last few months. Um, there are various iterations. It is a very tricky deck to build correctly. It has to be responsive to the metagame. It's got to deal with Sahili Rai combo now. Um, but it has a lot of tools. And if somebody figures out a great Colossus deck that is just, you know, 5% better against the field than the, than the other copies, that could be the magic bullet. Um, that card is uh, commonly available in the $1 to $2 range. It could be a 5 or $6 card, um, at which point you, you're you going to end up trading them out because selling them uh, into the price spike is going to be tough. Um, but the card's already gone up and down twice already, I think, since it was released in Kaladesh. Um, and, you know, that, that could be one of the things that shows motion. That has had a wild ride <clears throat> so far in terms of price. I was also thinking about Tezzeret too, but that's he's like twelve or thirteen, which is still too pricey. I think, uh, you know, if that was a couple bucks cheaper, I would like him a lot more. But it, it, if the Colossus deck includes Tezzeret or something, and it's a four of, and it's some crazy brew none of us have seen before, um, the the card would spike hard online, and you know, would only be barely justifying its price in paper. Um, that's a mythic that has to come down into the five to seven dollar range if it doesn't show up in standard pretty soon here. Right. At which, yeah, and you know, I don't actually think the card's that good. It, it's really just this weekend that I'd be interested in it. Um, so, I mean, one of one of the interesting things about Ether Revolt on the whole for the long term is that tons of the value in this set is locked up in the uncommons. I mean, the uncommons is where it's at. Winding Constrictor, Fatal Push, um, and a whole bunch of weird janky rares that'll get broken down the road. The mythics um, are largely unremarkable thus far. Um, and uh, to uh, a much greater extent than we've seen in other recent sets. And, and that makes for a very weird financial profile way down the road um, where w- once the set is out of print and the EV no longer matters... Um, because it can't be tempered by uh, retailers opening boxes if it gets too high. Um, sets that are really deep like that in the uncommon slot can end up doing really well. I mean, if you look at the first Modern Masters release, um, it was a very, very deep pool of uncommons that made that set um, pop when it did pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, New Phyrexia too had a lot of really good commons and uncommons that kind of matured as it went. Yeah. Um, although the mythics and rares and that might have been a little stronger, but I mean, we'll have to wait and see how how Aether Volt plays out. But I guess that not that's not really that's not really here nor there this weekend. But I mean, Fatal Push is still like five or six bucks. That is a heck of an uncommon. All right, so we've got to wrap this up so we can get this out for you guys uh, before the pro tour. Um, where can people find you online, Travis? Well, I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I'm on right every Monday for MTG Price. Uh, I do the Cartel Aristocrats webcast. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.land to find Magic in your area. 
And you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. I'm also going to be writing up the Pro Tour coverage all weekend on MTG Price, um, giving you guys the round-by-round breakdowns. For So keep an eye out for that. Um, when you get up in the morning and you're looking for your updates on the Pro Tour, you'll be able to find them on Price. Um, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, thanks for joining me to chat about the upcoming Pro Tour. I hope our listeners uh find some of this interesting, maybe useful. Uh, and I will see you next week, James, when, when we uh, can look at the results. Thanks, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on the 54th episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.